you would open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We're going to read a little bit more about this very reality. Luke chapter 2, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Luke 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, He was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your word. It is light and life. It it is a sword. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is alive and powerful. Lord, by its power would you cut... Would you cut deep into our hearts in places that I can't go? Lord, by your Spirit, do a work in our time with this lesson that only you can do. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. 
So we come to this most famous of uh, Christmas texts, probably, uh, the most well-known. You're probably like, wait, why didn't you save this for Christmas Eve or something? Well, we're just kind of walking through some Christmas texts leading up to uh, the celebration of our Lord's birth. And this falls in line right here. There's one problem uh, that we have when texts are really this familiar. Sometimes familiarity breeds contempt. And not that I would accuse anybody who darkened the doors today to, to hold Luke 2 in contempt. But I think sometimes it's, it's just so familiar, it just rolls off the tongue. You know, it's, it's even mentioned in a Charlie Brown Christmas special. I mean, these words come across and they come easy. Maybe sometimes we, uh, as a result, lose what's going on in the text. Maybe we lose something. My prayer this week has been, Lord, let us hear this again. Let, us, let this land on us. Let it hit us. Let it strike us anew. Because there's a lot here. There's a lot of beauty in this text. I think we all know this, this reality. So um, I'm going to tell a little story about my kids. I don't do this often, and they can get back at me later in some really terrible ways. I'm sure they will. But when they were young, when they were really young, uh, Felix was probably two and up from there, but we, we had this big combined Christmas morning with cousins. Uh, it wasn't just a family uh, thing. It was actual Christmas morning where all the, the cousins got together uh, and everybody did presents together. And we haven't done it since then. It was, it was unbelievable. And here's what happened. So um, kids were getting, so you exchange all the gifts that you get from your family. So we, we share gifts with our children each Christmas. Uh, but they also get gifts from uh, aunts and uncles from grandparents who were there. And what we saw was this. So uh, wrapping paper went flying. I mean, it was just like a wrapping paper uh, explosion happened. And um, they would look at a gift for a minute. And the first one or two, they would be intrigued with and almost like, hey, check up just a minute at this gift. They would stop and want to play with it, like actually want to you know, tear into that box and, and get to the Legos, right? And re- really forget about... So, but that didn't happen. They, they were intrigued with the first two, but after the first two or three, then they were like, Phew. they would unwrap a gift, Phew. throw it, like, give me the next one. Tear in, Phew. give me the next one. And we're like, hang on a second. This has just got to stop. This is crazy. So they, they uh, in exchange for something greater or the next gift or the next thing around the corner, they were willing to throw away this, this treasure. This gift that had been bought with thought, with them in mind. And my heart does the same thing. I think we do the same thing with Jesus, with the treasure that, that is Him. I think in favor of other treasures... Like, it, yeah, it's got its place. It'll take its place as we, as we toss this over there. But um, I, I think he becomes less valuable in our hearts. Here in this text, we see the coming of Christ teaching us some lessons 
One, I think it, it teaches this really incredible lesson about the upside-down nature of power. This text teaches us about the humility of the Son of God. Two, this text teaches us something about our own humanity, what it means to be human. It teaches us what we really need, God coming to us, to be one of us. Lastly, I think Advent teaches that what is truly worth celebrating in this life is not us. It gives us true hope. So the coming of Christ teaches us about humility, it teaches us about humanity, and it teaches us about hope. First, uh, humanity and the upside-down nature of power. Look, look at the way this text, and it's, it's very strategic and very easy to overlook. It starts with Caesar Augustus and the whole world being registered under him. Luke is starting with a a big, wide funnel, way up here, way up high. It doesn't get any more powerful than this guy. Not in earthly power. Caesar Augustus. He's Emperor Octavian. Called Augustine in the line of Caesars by the Senate. He's the emperor given credit for largely rescuing the Roman Empire that was on the verge of fracture and in part ushering in the Pax Romana, the, the, the peace of Rome that would last for a pretty long time. He's considered one of the greatest Caesars. He's very powerful. He has a lot of influence. And from there, Luke goes, so he, he, he tells the whole world, this is the whole Roman world, the, the, the whole world of his empire to be registered in his hometown. From there, he goes down one step to Quirinius, the governor of Syria. So this is from the, the, the outer regions. This is the national leader down to the state governor, Quirinius, was a Roman aristocrat. Through connections, they would get appoint certain appointments and positions of power. Quirinius drew a bad lot. Syria was not the best pick of the litter because it also included Judea, and Judea was always trouble. But he's still talking about power. He wants us to see, Luke wants us to see and hear power. Augustus Caesar, Quirinius. Luke's funnel gets more narrow in three through five. From there, he goes, now he goes from Caesar to a governor down to Joseph, a young man and his teenage wife. Think about that. Where is true power? From the most powerful that you can think of, uh, these are landmark names in their day, down to Joseph, from the line, from the lineage of David, from the halls and courts of power in Rome controlling the whole known world, to an inn that was real crowded, bustling. From the guy who called for everyone to be registered to the guy who's going there to get taxed 
And then he zeroes in beyond just Joseph and Mary. From there, his lens goes down one more layer, and it goes down into a a manger. So from Caesar Augustus to, to a baby lying in a manger wrapped in cloth. Power. Power. He's wanting to teach us what true power looks like. It's not what you think. You think it's the power of the world that that makes all the decisions and rules everything. And it's so easy to put your trust in that. Here's true power. A snapshot of the king lying in a manger. Consider with me for a minute our previous two Advent texts. What did they say about this baby that he will be great? He will be called the Son of the Most High. He will rule David's throne forever. He will reign over Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. He will be called Holy, the Son of God. Mary, in her song, describes the mercy of God extends from generation to generation. Holy is his name. He brings down the mighty from their thrones. He scatters the proud. He exalts those in a humble estate. He fills the hungry and sends the rich away empty. That's who's lying in this manger. Luke is wanting to show us true power. His funnel is going from what we would think of as the greatest power, this, this immense power of Caesar. It doesn't get any higher. His word is law down and down and down and down to Jesus. He's flipping upside down our notions of worldly power. He's pointing to the humility of Jesus. Here we have two models of power that he is presenting to us. And so the question for us in the room today is which one is real? Which power is real? Which one is lasting for you? Which of these outlooks on life captures your heart and your affections? Is it the power of Caesar that captures your heart? Do you believe that's the true power that you need to save you? Can that fix your problems? But that's what power promises, right? We want power so we can, we can address various things and use our clout to maneuver things. Which power can save? You put your trust in political power, national economic stability, Put your hope in the fleeting powers of this world. Look, look the, the, the church in China right now. Those who believe like we do about who Jesus is. Can they put any trust, any hope in their government? That their government is going to save them and protect them and always make the right decision and always do what's right. No, they're being locked in jail by that power. They're being persecuted by that power. But I think sometimes in our minds and in our hearts, we trick ourselves and we say, hey, earthly power really is the answer to what I I need and what I want. And maybe it's not power above you. Maybe you're not even looking to uh, earthly powers. Maybe it's your own power. This is flipping that on its head too. 
This is showing that the power of God tools and works all things according to the will of God. He is utterly, God is utterly in control. What might it look like if we put our hope, our trust in the things of this world to fix our problem? What might that look like in your life? Politics? A good economy? If only this decision were made by this guy, then I would be okay? Where does it end? Can it ever fix the sin that is in us? The message of Christmas comes along and destroys all of that. It says that these worldly powers from Caesar Augustus and a decree that would go out from him to the whole world that would say, that's not real power. Real power, true power, is the very Son of God lying in the manger in a crowded inn in Bethlehem. Colossians 2 applies this. Have this mind. This is, this is an incredible text. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to. Listen, it doesn't get any higher than this power. There is no higher power than this. Equality with God. One with Him. The Trinity. Eternally existing together. Father, Son, and Spirit. But emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Look, worldly power is deceiving. And the scriptures are offering us something beautiful here. It's saying, hey, we're going to pull back the curtain and let you see the truth about the power that controls lives. Which power is real? Which one is real? Which one is smoke and mirrors and which one is real in your life? Which power do you submit to? Caesar Augustus? The baby in the manger? In that we see the humility of God We also see that the coming of Christ teaches us what we really need. It teaches us about our own humanness. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So here we are transported out into a a field with sheep. It would be smelly. And they're just doing their job up all night, protecting these sheep. And there, here come angels. And we've, we've seen, this is the third encounter so far that we've seen angels. They're on the scene a lot. And what happens whenever you encounter an angel? This is important. This is a detail we bring up every time. What happens? Fear. Fear. 
What would happen if you or I encountered this heavenly scene? Do you think we would be, hey, this is just like, you know, turning on Netflix. I'm just utterly at ease. I'm going to prop my feet up and watch. No, this is upsetting. This is deeply troubling. Yet notice verse 16 and 17. These same shepherds in the field... Listen, and they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Look, the ultimate, the height of what they they were told about is this baby. They could approach with no fear. They could simply approach their king. Do you see that? Afraid, We're afraid of the, the announcement over here, but now we can just approach our king with no fear. He's a baby. He's a child. The humanness of Christ is deeply felt in this text. Let's not miss it. Perhaps more starkly than, than in any other place in Scripture, in this scene we see the contrast between fear and approaching a baby. That's what God does does in the incarnation. Look, in God becoming man, he becomes approachable. God becomes vulnerable. He becomes like us. 1 John 4, 9 and 10, and this is love. And this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Look, this is the most loving thing God could ever do is send his son to be vulnerable, to be human. This is what is happening in Luke 2. Listen, nothing should shock us more than God becoming man. Don't let this text become so easy and so comfortable that you miss the fact that God, who spoke all things into existence by the word of his power, is born a person, a man, a human being. True power and love is experienced in condescension, not just domination. Do you hear that? That's what John was just saying. True power, true love is seen in condescension, not just domination. Every Thanksgiving since I was real little, since, uh, since I can remember, we, we've always had this, uh, we call it the turkey bowl. So we all gather together at my grandmother's house. We eat too much food for lunch. Then we go into the front yard that used to seem huge, and now it's like really tiny, but it used to seem massive, and we would all play a football game. Do you know what sticks out to me about that football game? Even from the time I was tiny, from my earliest memories, I was involved. Like, what does that mean? I I was a part of the team. They would throw me the ball, and I was terrible at it. I'm like, here, throw it. You know, that's my catching stance. When you're three, this is how you catch, right? And, and I would be told on the palm of either, you know, an older cousin or an uncle or my dad, you know, 
uh, we're, we're drawing out plays, right? And the play for me is take three steps and turn around. Do you see that? Take, take three steps and turn around. I mean, it's not a complex play. But guess what? I would take three steps, turn around, arms out, and they would throw me the ball. And then like a pro athlete, which in my head I was, and I would turn and bob and weave through the grown-ups, right, and score. The crowd would go wild. Incredible. Then as I, as I grew up, I began to see, oh, wait a second. There's something incredibly uh, strange going on here. There are actually some really good athletes out here. A cousin that played college tennis. Some other, some other guys that are, that are real good athletes. And yet I'm being allowed to play. Right? They are condescending in, in their love and in their ability to bring us all in. So much so that this year, my two-year-old nephew ran one all the way back to score. Because a very highly athletic cousin, when he had the ball, my two-year-old nephew, picked him up and then proceeded to run through everybody in the front yard to score, holding him up. That's condescending to include, to love, to embrace. It was beautiful. It was power. Look, every illustration utterly breaks down. I realize that. But there is no greater power condescending in love for any of us than right here in this text where God himself becomes man condescending to us, to love us, to include us, not in a, in a cheesy front yard football game on Thanksgiving, which is great, but in his kingdom to call us his own children, to invite us into a heavenly home, an eternal place to be with him forever. God condescended to become us. That's love, that's power, that's beauty. What does this mean? How does the humanity of Christ teach us more about what it means to be human? We learn that we are susceptible, defenseless, impotent, weak. In short, we're vulnerable. This week, uh, I came across this statement by uh, our PCA moderator. His name is Erwin Entz. He said this about vulnerability. Listen. Vulnerability is like matter. It can neither be created nor destroyed. Vulnerability is. You can't ignore it, wish it, or deny it out of existence. It can only be embraced by individuals and communities or be imposed on individuals and communities. This is the beauty of the incarnation. It is God's embrace of the vulnerability that is inherent in humanity in order to exercise the necessary power and authority to free us from the grip of sin such that we no longer have to fear vulnerability, end quote. That's an incredible reality. Look, the incarnation is about God himself becoming vulnerable to all that fallen humanity has to offer. 
Guys, do you know that the very Son of God knows what it's like to have a skint knee? He knows. He knows what it's like to catch a cold. He knows what it's like to have a friend betray you. The very Son of God knows vast brokenness. Do you think you have brokenness that God can't understand? Look, that's the beauty of the incarnation. He came here. He knows. He's walked here. Vulnerability. God himself became vulnerable to take up his power and crush that vulnerability so that you and I no longer have to fear. 2 Corinthians 2.9, an astounding text. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, there's not, none richer than him. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became what? Poor. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. Why? So that you, by his poverty, what? By his poverty, that you and I who were poor might do what? We might be rich. He lost so that we could win. He laid his power down, redefining it all in humility so that, that we might be lifted up. Here's the thing. How, how would it utterly transform our lives to really know that God knows what it's like to be human? How would, how would that transform our lives if we truly believe that God himself became us? What would that do to us? To believe that God became man. To really believe that. In Christ, we have a great high priest who can sympathize with all our weaknesses. We don't have a high priest who's unable because it says that he has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He's walked here, he knows. We can draw near in our time of need. We can fully engage our Father through our high priest, Jesus. Do you have to hide your sin from God? Do you feel like you have to hide your sin from God? Because you don't think he knows? You don't think he would understand? You don't think he gets fallen humanity? He came to die for it. You don't have to hide your brokenness from him. This gives us the ability to, to truly confess and repent. The grace of God does that. So God comes to us redefining true power, flipping it on its head. He comes to us knowing what it is to be truly human and vulnerable. And lastly, he comes to us uh, teaching us how to celebrate, giving true hope. Here's what a true celebration looks like. Luke has taken us from the height of worldly power, and he's funneled us all the way down to Jesus, and here he's going he's gonna to take us right back out. He's going to walk us back out, uh, opening up again to, uh, to give us a glimpse here. And he says this, 
he, he goes to a desolate place outside of town in fields there. And an angel of the, the Lord appeared to them, shepherds doing their job. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. What must that have looked like? And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So again, like I was talking in the children's lesson, who who received the invitation to to Jesus' baby shower? All their friends and family. The height of worldly power, one surely went to the Caesar, the king of kings is being born. Oh, it went to shepherds in a field. Please notice the heavenly rejoice, rejoicing here. So that it starts with this announcement of an angel, and then all of a sudden it's like the, the curtains of heaven are ripped open, and these guys get a glimpse of not just the angels, but do you hear what it says? The glory of the Lord is shining around them. Don't cheapen the scene. Don't don't just be satisfied with the cartoon version here. The glory of God was shining in that field. Hundreds of, of heavenly beings, a choir of them, belting praise in this dark field with shepherds. What's going on there? Is that not a wild scene to you? Please don't overlook that because you're familiar. Don't overlook it. You're meant to see something, and here it is. Heaven touching earth. That which is most glorious and most beautiful coming to that which is most common. Out there in a field is a picture of what's going on in the stable. Heaven breaking into earth. That's what true praise looks like. That's what's going on with Jesus. The very glory of God incarnate. It's a picture. It's a snapshot. It's a celebration where heaven touches earth. It's a glimpse of where all this is going. Where there is no separation. Heaven come down. Earth transformed. Heavenly praise. It's a glimpse of the end. It's a snapshot of glory. What's the announcement Good news. Gospel. The gospel. Great joy for all people. This good news is joy to be for all people. And what is the, the, the um, substance of good news and joy for all people? This, a Savior is born. Who is Christ the Lord, the Messiah. Here he is. The coming of Christ doesn't ever mean we stop at the the birth of Christ. It doesn't leave us in a manger. Advent doesn't leave us there. If it does, we are are shortening and cheapening Christmas. It points us to heaven touching earth, to salvation, hope for sinners, joy for people like you and me, sinners who need a Savior. The announcement is he's been born. Glory to God in the highest. He's here again. We're pointing to the highest power and peace on earth. 
among those who he is pleased. This angelic announcement is one of peace. Peace with God, shalom, wholeness, rightness, done in individuals and in communities and spreading all over the world. Peace on earth, shalom, the way things are supposed to be. Christmas means hope, real hope. Hope for our brothers and sisters in jail cells in China. Hope for them. Hope for sinners like me and you. What does true celebration look like? True, glorious celebration. It looks like worship. That's what's going on there. True celebration in this world, in this life, looks like heaven touching earth in joy, in praise, in adoration. It looks like worship. Christmas, Advent, the birth of Christ shows us the the very humility of God, redefining power. Which one do we believe is true? Christmas teaches us what it means to be vulnerable, to be human. Christmas teaches us about true hope, true celebration, heaven touching earth with good news. A few applications, you see it right at the end of the text. It tells us kind of what the people did with all this. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. First of all, the shepherds don't hold this in. When they go and they see the baby, they're they're like, hey, check out what happened to us. This message is not to be hoarded by people. Luke is very intentional. They went and they... They gave this account of what happened. Verse 18, all who heard it wondered at the shepherds, at what the shepherds told them. Do we have wonder at this? Or is this like, meh? They wondered at it. Verse 19, but Mary treasured these things up, pondering them in her heart. This term treasured means preserving them, keeping them safe in her mind, in her heart. Further, we're told that she she pondered them. That, That verb is very interesting. She pondered these things about Jesus in her heart, and it means this, to throw back and forth. She kept Jesus and these incredible things about them in her mind, pondering them. In verse 20, the shepherds returned doing what? The celebration didn't stop. The praise doesn't quit. The shepherds go back to work, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told then. Is this true of us? Do we encounter Christ and respond glorifying and praising God for what we've been given? What's our response to the message of the gospel proclaimed to us? Is it apathy? Nah, I've heard that before. Is it cynicism? Are we cynics about this message? Is it anger? I don't want a power bigger than me. 
I don't want control over me like that. Or is it pure, unadulterated joy, overflowing with praise to God, who would condescend becoming vulnerable to love us, the likes of you and me? Listen.